Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a way to hang out with me online. If there's one thing I know for sure, it's that when ordinary people engage their creativity, they connect with their joy and their deepest selves come to life. I've started a newsletter called The Spark. It's a place for me to experiment with my writing and share it with an audience, and also a place to get to know you better. I'm using the Substack platform because it offers some really cool ways to connect with readers, including comments and chats. I'd love for you to join me as we form a community that supports and celebrates each other's creative courage. Because it's an experiment, you never know what sort of thing I might share on the Spark, and honestly, neither do I. Could be my thoughts on something I've noticed recently, a poem, a response to a photo or a piece of music, or just something completely unexpected. It's always accessible, always personal, and usually has something to do with creativity. The Spark is where I'll be adding programs for subscribers and listeners too, so you really want to be there to hear what's happening. It is totally free to subscribe, and you can find a link to The Spark in your podcast app. So sign up today. I can't wait to see you there. Director, animator, and author Kevin John Davis grew up enthralled by Doctor Who and Spike Milligan's The Goon Show. When he discovered the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show, it seemed like the best of both worlds. Before long, he was doing animation for the TV series. Kevin tells me how he got into animation, how he moved from animation into directing, including directing 30th anniversary documentaries for both Doctor Who and Hitchhikers in the same year, and all about the process of writing his new book, 42, The Wildly Improbable Ideas of Douglas Adams. Here's my conversation with Kevin John Davis. Kevin, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Well, thank you for having me, Nancy. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. It's a little bit, a little bit different from the sounds of your uh, sort of your questionnaire you sent me. I, with a quite thought-provoking questions, so uh, I oh, hope good. I can be of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I start everybody off with the same question, which is: Were you a creative kid, or did you discover your creative side later on in life? I think I was quite a creative kid. I was always drawing. Um, I had a couple of family members who were very gifted in that area. Uh, an uncle and a great aunt who I looked up to a lot. Um, the, the uncle could do everything, really. He performed magic tricks and he played the guitar. and He could draw. And I remember him teaching me to, on my blackboard as a very t- small toddler to draw the prow of a ship. So it was like a, an ocean-going liner but coming towards you. And um, my mum always reminded me that when I did this at school, the teacher thought I was some kind of genius. <laughs> but I have my uncle to thank for showing me it, you know. Um, and I had an aunt who was very creative. She did all sorts of things, and dressmaking and art and things, and um, always very encouraging. So, yes, I, 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 and um, I had a, a, my grandfather who worked in sort of publicity for the London Transport you know, the buses and the tube system and things. He used to get me offcuts of their paper and uh, strangely sort of red and blue pencils. I don't know why they needed those so much, but, um, and he would get these for me and I would just be drawing all over this stuff. It was printed red and white on the back, but the flip side was a kind of more rough texture. So I had endless reams of this cartridge paper that I could just keep drawing on. 
Um, so I love that. And I remember being at school and um, uh, when I was in sort of very young, I mean, seven years old or something, and um, a couple of kids sort of gathering around me trying to copy what I was doing. Um, I think later on I was not so, I, I wasn't as good as I'd like to have been at life drawing. I mean, that's the real essence. If you can draw people, you can draw anything. Um, I did a couple of years at art school instead of the sixth form. So I came out of art college uh, quite early. I was still only 18 when I finished and um, and got very lucky and got into animation, which is, I, it was a toss-up. I wanted to do either special effects where you have to make things or animation where you draw things. And I found I was better at drawing things than making things. <laughs> but yeah, loved it. And uh, lots and lots of Lego. I was mad about playing <laughs> with Lego. Um, and I often think that maybe the putting together of Legos and doing the odd sort of airfix kits, um, I think maybe gave gives some kind of idea of how to slot things together. Uh, my father was uh, an engineer, stroke mechanic, um, uh, again for London Transport. Um, my mum was a librarian, and I did a, I, I did do a job as a librarian for a little while. So books and that kind of thing, you know, and a technical mind, it kind of all comes together when you research a big archive and then make a documentary out of it. You know, that seems that's been my main job for the last thirty years. But for a good sort of decade or more before that, I was an animator, drawn animation. Uh, so, yeah, I think creativity has always been there. Sounds like it. Mm. So how did you move from animation into directing? Well, I think I'd always been dabbling with um, video directing while I was an animator. I think the thing about animation is that you sat at a drawing board all day and um, I began to enjoy being with other people on a studio or on a location with a camera because it was interacting with people. And I started to enjoy that more than the business of sitting down where you're in your own little world. And increasingly at that time in the late 80s, I was finding that I was working on commercials for about five years. I did, I did Who Framed Roger Rabbit? That was a huge project. And uh, I think every freelance animator in london went to work on that um but i was in the special effects department with a very very inspirational boss uh who was a bit of a genius a quiet genius who uh, uh, a guy called chris knott um and i followed him into this uh, uh a production company that made uh, tv commercials mixing animation with live action and um i think uh, because i was sent on the shoots to go and supervise on the live action shoot that was then going to have an animated element added to it later. You know, we after Roger Rabbit, everyone wanted that look. And we were just starting to experiment with the early digital compositing techniques. And I think the more that I went on shoots to be the animator's eyes and ears on set and stood alongside the cameraman, I was sort of by osmosis, I was getting an education in how to direct and how to look at things on a live action shoot but i was enjoying the whole business of being with a crew and then um you know when that job then i would then have to go back and work at the drawing board for the next few weeks to do all the drawn element i was kind of resenting it because it was back into a solitary world and more and more people were wearing headphones you know the sony walkman and things like that they were lost in little worlds on their own and it became less 
less of a, a group activity. Um, and I, I enjoyed the whole business of being with the other people. So that was it. And I gravitated towards the live action and I got lucky. I got lucky with the very first animation job I ever got. And I got lucky with the first um, live action directing job, which was for the BBC and was a respect retrospective on the making of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I had loved as my first year in the business as an animator. Um, I adored all that and I'd made um, video recordings and lots and lots of uh, still photography and, you know, borrowed cameras mostly, it had to be at the time. Um, and I'd stored all that stuff away. And then I got a job to do a documentary looking back about 12 years to my first year in the business and summing it up in a, in a quite a complex documentary. Um, it had lots of elements to it. I just pulled in favours. Everybody I knew, they all wanted to come and work on it for nothing just to get their name on Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide. It was that that popular. It was that prestigious a title, you know. Um, so that's why I got lucky doing that. And that led, as I think I said in one of my answers to your uh, questionnaire, one thing leads to another. You know, if you do a reasonable job, someone thinks of you, ah, I know the guy to do that. And um, things just roll up. Right. You know, I can't I can't pretend it's been constant. I mean, I have had periods of unemployment, you know, <laughs> the freelance life goes up and down. You never know when it's, it's feast or famine, you know. Um, I mean, it looks like I've had a lot of feasts, but there have been a bit of, <laughs> there's been a bit of famine in between. <laughs> so let me make sure that I have the chronology right here because you grew up watching Doctor Who. And then, yes. so so Doctor Who came before Hitchhikers for you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm two years older than Doctor Who. Doctor Who's about to celebrate its 60th mm -hmm. anniversary. And um, uh, I can't remember a time when Doctor Who wasn't on television. My, my mother told me that I she reckons that I was sat on her lap when she watched the earliest ones. I do remember seeing William Hartnell, the very first Doctor, who, you know, ran for the first three years. Uh, I, can, I have vivid memories of having nightmares about Daleks and things. Um, and there were certain characters and events from those early days that I can remember even now. Um, Patrick Troughton came along when I was just about starting at school, in primary school. And um, by the time we got to the fourth doctor, Tom Baker, um, I was at senior school. And they had a black and white reel-to-reel -reel video recorder. And with that, we tried to make our own Doctor Who episode. I, I built a Dalek with friends and with the help of one of the uh, project uh, teachers, um, the sort of art and craft teacher, and I built this rather shonky Dalek, um, <laughs> which if I look at it now, it's pretty terrible. But we did take it along in 1975, took it along to meet Terry Nation. Uh, I was oh, very wow. excited to meet him, and he created the Daleks and... Um, he said that he'd got a new science fiction thing coming up soon. But I, when I now look back and I did documentaries about Blake Seven, I realised that's what he was talking about. Uh, he already had another one called Survivors was on at that point. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I was very excited to meet him. But it was those days before video recorders and things, really, and not before domestic ones anyway. We had this old one reel-to-reel -reel at the school, but... Um, uh, we had to say goodbye to Terry Nation, my friend and I, because we wanted to get home to watch Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in those days, you know, if you weren't there, bums on seats, you know, 
you'd missed right. it forever. We thought we thought we'd never see it again. You know, uh, little do we know now we can access every single bit of it, everything we can find. Right. Um, there's still a bundle missing um, because the BBC stupidly threw them away. Um, BBC have a reputation for this. They they <laughs> they keep all the paperwork and throw away the films. <laughs> They're good at that. Yeah, I I yeah. just gave a couple of the Target novels to my older nephew, and we had to explain to him that mm. you know when I was just a little bit older than he was, you know before streaming that this was how you kind of watched the old yeah, episodes and old. I felt so old. <laughs> and it's <laughs> thrilling in those days. I can still remember family holidays where you'd go along to the bookshop, you know, on the seafront and there's a brand new Target paperback, you know, and mm -hmm. I think I can remember um, Web of Fear when that book first came out. I was on holiday, I think, in Wales and just devoured it on the beach and all through the evening. And, you know, it was just so exciting because then it's so funny to think, and we're talking about the late seventies, but then you were reaching back in time, which was really only about a decade, but it seemed forever when you're that age, right? you know, it was a way of accessing the past and Doctor Who's all about time travel. So being able to access um, a story from, that was half remembered from a childhood memory or something as in the case of many people from before they were born. Um, and good old Terence sticks. I got to know him a little bit, um, worked on a couple of things with him. Uh, he, he wrote quite a few of them and, uh, he, uh, his contemporaries as well. And so they were a very important part of, uh, I mean, they, they were very well written. They were designed for, as they used to say, um, he and Robert Holmes, the script editor used to say that they write for the intelligent 14 year old. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, uh, I preened myself. That's me. That's, that's, that's who <laughs> they're writing it for me, you know? Right. And I think every fan who read the target books thought they were written for them, whatever age they were. So yeah, no, it was lovely. And, um, they told you a bit about the world. There was a little bit of politics in there occasionally. It's quite funny to see Doctor Who being criticized for that nowadays oh, because it was all, it was always there. There was there was always a a bit of an agenda from the writers, and uh, they were clever men. They were classically trained men. They were not. They did not grow up watching television. They were creating television, but they came from a more literary background. I mean, they might spoof, you know, whatever was current in horror movies or whatever during their various eras, but um, they were essentially you know, men who had read a lot. And I think that comes across in those early Doctor Whos, you know. Uh, so, yes, I, I admire them enormously. So that was a first love. That and also the comedian Spike Milligan and his friends Peter Sellers and Harry Seacombe had a comedy troupe called The Goons, which did predate me. They were really in the 50s. And they, for 10 years, they made The Goon Shows, which were irreverent, knockabout, surrealistic, comedies with a set number of characters put into different scenarios every week and uh, I fell in love with that first of all in its script form and then my mum explained that she used to run home from the library to listen to this on the radio so I'd be asking her how did they sound because I'd read it in script form mm -hmm. and I love Spike Milligan I had his silly verse for kids and things like that his books um, but the scripts just grabbed me the whole idea and the, the imagination behind it so I used to record them on a tape recorder with friends 
uh, first of all, an old reel-to-reel tape recorder and then little cassettes. And uh, we just did impressions of my mum's bad impressions <laughs> until, until I eventually got vinyl records of the BBC radio programmes and I could finally hear them, the voices for myself. Um, and so loving that with all the weird sound effects and the knockabout comedy and the strange, surreal sense of humour, that combined with Doctor Who were my two great loves. Bit of Monty Python thrown in as well for good measure. Um, although I was, I, I was at that age, my mum and dad didn't really watch that and I, I didn't really see a lot of it when it was first being broadcast. I think I came to it, first of all, through the movies, um, Monty Python. But all of that mixed together, in 1978, I discovered this radio show called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy written by the man who'd just written a really good Doctor Who, The Pirate Planet, which had a certain peculiar sense of humour to mm-hmm. it. Um, and literally, I'd only heard two episodes of the radio show, which seemed to synthesise the goons and Doctor Who to me. It was a bit of a mixture of the two. And um, uh, this friend who had introduced it to, uh, me to this title, um, two weeks later, said, I'm, I, I've got an appointment. We'll go and see... The guy who wrote it, Douglas Adams, he's just become the new Doctor Who script editor. And uh, would you like to come and meet him? I said, sure, I would. And then I found the reason. He said, and have you still got that tape recorder that you got for your birthday? (laughs) (laughs) He really wanted my tape recorder more than he wanted me there. But anyway, um, three of us went along and interviewed Douglas Adams. And that was my first meeting with the great man himself, um, where clearly... He loved the whole thing of dragging him away from his real job of having to write. He could just sit there and chain smoking and answering the phone occasionally and pontificating. And the producer, Graham Williams, would stick his head in the door every now and again and go, "Um, Douglas, you know, um, we've got a scene to write before the end of the afternoon, Uh, you know, trying to chivvy us along a bit. And then Douglas would draw him into the conversation as well, because Douglas was a famous procrastinator. And uh, yes, anything, <laughs> anything to take him away from writing. Uh, even these three young Herberts, you know, <laughs> coming along and asking him questions. I mean, we asked him questions about Hitchhiker to start with. He said, I thought this was, he said, oh, you know about that, you know, because it was so new. And he said, I thought this was going to be an interview about Doctor Who. And we got onto the Doctor Who stuff eventually, but um we were all fascinated to know where did you get the ideas and all that sort of thing. So um, I've still got this audio cassette. I've used bits of it in documentaries and on various projects in the past. Um, I interviewed Douglas on and off over the years and our paths crossed for the next 20 years after that. Mainly, I mean, I mainly got to know him on the, on the TV series two years later, working on the the animation for the TV series. He loved our animation, thank goodness. He didn't always get on with the producer. Uh, we did. We liked Alan Bell, but um, he and he and Douglas were two very different men. Luckily, we got on with both of them, and you know, but uh, never the twain should meet. Really, Douglas liked the cast. He enjoyed their company. They were all around about his age and more his kind of wavelength. Whereas the producer, producer director Alan Bell was more slightly more old school. He's a bit older than them. He knew how to get things done. That was the important thing. I think some of Douglas's wild ideas had to be scotched for practicality, so practical reasons. And uh, But it was a fab year for me. I was 19 that summer. We'd made episode one. I went and worked on the stage show of Hitchhiker 
the third stage show at that point um, and met him again there. And then in the latter half of that year, we made the next five episodes. So there was a bit of gap while the BBC decided the upper echelons weren't sure, is this thing funny or not? <laughs> so we had to have a screening of episode one to get a laughter track. Oh, wow. And it was like, oh, it was terrible because it sounded like every other terrible British sitcom with a laughter track. And thank God they decided to go without it. But it, I think it was done as a political point to prove that to these BBC executives that it was funny and that, yes, the pilot had gone like massively over budget, um, but it would be worth investing in the rest of the series. And so they eventually did give it the green light and uh, we went back to work on the next part of the show. Uh, which is took me right the way through to the beginning of eighty one. So, you know, that was um, there was a lot of intense work there to get it done in time. And I, I just, I mean, I made a nuisance of myself. I was under their feet. I was there with cameras and poking around the side of the scenery, snapping pictures. And at one point, Sandra Dickinson, who was there on Friday night at the launch of this book, uh, she went, "Oh my God, you're everywhere." <laughs> You were making and, uh, the documentary before you were making the documentary. Well, quite. I didn't know. <laughs> I was just enjoying it and reveling in it. I mean, I, I used to gate crash at the BBC and go and watch Doctor Who being made. Um, one of the special effects people, um, Matt Irvin, who used to appear as the BBC's resident special effects uh, expert, and he would appear on a Saturday morning show quite regularly to explain how the models were done and he used to inspire a lot of kids to make their own models and things like that. He was fantastic with the fans, and I wasn't the only one. There were plenty of people went to visit him at his workshop and uh, to go on the set of Doctor Who and watch it. I spent three days watching a story called The Stones of Blood being made when Doctor Who was only 15 years old. It's hard to imagine now. Um, here we are coming up on the 60th. So, uh, yeah, I was well prepared for when, you know, I got to make the documentaries of Hitchhiker and that followed that same year, 93, I went straight into making a, the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who, a big BBC One programme, um, uh, looking at the history of the show so far. It was off air at that point and everyone was hoping it was going to come back. It had a good 26-year run and... Um, BBC chose to celebrate it, even though it was off air, which was nice. So we, and they gave us a decent budget in those days. We've got reasonable money from one of the arts strands of the BBC documentary side of things. But of course I wanted to play Doctor Who. So I had, I got back all the actors and all the paraphernalia. I found fans who had made beautiful copies of the monsters and costumes and things. We got original ones as well. And we got the actors to go and do little reenactions reenactments of scenes from the classic era uh, and created some new new style cliffhangers of our own and dabbled with a little bit of modern special effects to show how I was hoping that the sort of really it was a, a sort of a, a, a cloaked way of showing the BBC what Doctor Who could be mm. with modern style effects because Doctor Who used to be rather derided I think for, for its cheapness and it's, but we all love it for that now. You know, right. I mean, it was the, it was the stories. It was, the green we didn't bubble care wrap that. monster. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. terrible. Certain shonky old uh, dinosaurs, that one particularly. I, I loved that originally, but it does look pretty, pretty uh, shonky now. But um, uh, we got access to the animatronic dinosaurs at the Natural History Museum and draped them with uh, blue cloth. So we were able to isolate them as a blue screen and drop them into shots of Pertwee, John Pertwee, the third doctor, with his Hoomobile, which we managed to find. A collector had kept it and uh, we did, reunited them um in a famous location from one of his stories and uh plopped the dinosaurs into the shots you know and we, and we also did a shot that i really loved which was the uh the camera i wanted to go from the tardis the police box on location the iconic blue police box on location and we're better than tower bridge a very iconic image of london mm -hmm. and we went in through the doors of the tardis into the inner control room to prove that the whole thing was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. And it's the first time anyone did that. And I think that that gave a lot of fans a bit of a bit of a kick, you know, something they've always wanted to see. It was to prove it could be done. They did do it. They did it beautifully later. When the series came back, uh, there was a Peter Capaldi, or was it? Oh no, it was Matt Smith, I think, the episode where um where they did the same thing and uh, they did it with great style. One of the companions drove a motorbike. Uh, from a, 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 a dirt track somewhere out in the countryside yes. straight into the police box and skidded, skidded to a halt next to the console. And I loved that. And that was a nice little sort of, you know, wink to the possibilities, I think. So, yeah, I've had a, I've had a, a lovely time doing those kind of jobs. And I look back on them with great fondness. And that's the kind of thing that I wonder if, I don't want to say that it, sounds like it's not possible for someone who wasn't a fan to come up with that idea but it seems like it's more likely that if you were a fan you would want to come up with a way to show something like that yeah i think so um there, there was at that time there was going to be a drama a big bbc drama to celebrate the 30th anniversary in the end that crashed and burned and we're still really not really sure of the entire details for that there was talk that spielberg's company was going to make doctor who um, in the end, it was, you know, it was hived off to a different company. Um, uh, and it did happen a couple of years after I did that big documentary. Um, but that drama, if it had happened, you know, I was going to be involved in that doing post-production effects, which is what the sort of thing I was doing in big sort of blue chip commercials at that time. Um, and then I had the opportunity to do the documentary. And for one crazy day where I had about two hours of trying to work out will i do will i be the big fish in a little pool of make my own documentary about the show or am i going to be just very much a cog in the machine of this biggest doctor whoever and run the post-production effects and i knew i couldn't do both not in time for the big 30th anniversary and i was pacing up and down my kitchen trying to work out the pros and cons of which job should I do. And then I got a phone call. For two hours, I was like that, pacing. And then I got a phone call saying that the big drama had been cancelled. Um, I didn't know why at that point, but in a way I was relieved because it made the decision for me. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was sad that the drama didn't go, especially for the guy who wrote it, who was also a fan, and I got on all right with mm -hmm. him. Um, but, uh, you know, I was also delighted to be able to, celebrate it in my own way and and be the kingpin of that and they gave me an office at the bbc i used to go into television center and you know commute in every day and um just for a little while i was i was holding the 
the keys to the toy box, you know. <laughs> um, in fact, everything everything to do with Doctor Who came to our office because at that time the show wasn't being produced. And um, so any bit of fan mail or any other thing that came in to the BBC for Doctor Who suddenly arrived on our doorstep and we had to deal with it. You know, that was a bit weird for <laughs> just for a, sure. a number of weeks, you know, a few months. But, um, uh, yeah, that was a, it was a good time leading up to the Christmas of... 93 um and then i recut it the following year to feature length and that's the version that's out on dvd and has been for over a decade now uh there's rumble there's a rumor that we might do a blu-ray uh but they're trying to do all the doctor who's on blu-ray at the moment when they're done i expect probably the last thing they'll do will be the wilderness years as they call it mm-hmm. um which hopefully will include my big documentary maybe a few extras i've kept all the tapes because I, I knew the BBC would throw them away. So I, abs- <laughs> I absconded with the rushes. Can't imagine uh, where you got that idea. <laughs> I, had, I, had, um, I had an inkling. No, I, we knew. We knew that it was like the chances are if they were on the shelf at the BBC, someone would look at a, a clipboard and go, do you know, we don't really need these anymore. And it would all be gone. So I, I had access while I did recut it for full length, for feature length. And... Um, I quietly left the editing room with various boxes in the boot of my car <laughs> and uh, took them home and that's where they stayed. But they've now gone back to a certain person at the BBC who looks after the Blu-rays and all that and uh, they, it, they're there ready to be remastered. So we'll see. Those folks <laughs> do an amazing job too. They do. They and really the packaging, do. the packaging and everything, um, astonishing. The quality of the technology they're using is extraordinary because um, Mark Ayres, who is a great friend of mine, um, who helped me on more than 30 years and a few other projects, um, we'd been friends since all the way back uh, as long as Doctor Who fandom had been around from the late 70s. We'd known each other and we'd done a couple of amateur things as well. Um, He became the saviour of the Radiophonic Workshop when the BBC were literally going to throw it all away when that department closed in '98. There were three rooms of audio tape, which was the entire Radiophonic archive. And somebody somewhere, an accountant, decided that three rooms charged internally didn't make sense. So they took them from these custom-built shelving where they had been since the place had started. You know, that, that sort of archive had grown and grown since 1958 through to 98. And they took them off the shelves and it, it was all due to be put in a skip and taken away by a truck. Um, and as Marquez put it, um, in a staggering bit of BBC efficiency, uh, no one had thought to book the skip. So he, he, he found them in a room, all dumped unceremoniously in piles on the floor. And he rescued it all. He was given a, a, ti- a tiny budget. He put a lot of his blood, sweat and tears into it. He created a database. He rescued all the tapes. He went through every tape and consolidated it down to as few reels as possible. Still hundreds. Um, and he now has got it all digitized and it's all safe. But, you know, all that resource could have been thrown away. Delia Derbyshire and all her uh, compatriots, you know, nice. all their work across the four decades. Uh, could have been lost forever, but no, it's safe. So, you know, it takes the passion of fans um, and the guys that 
uh, Mark, who does the audio of all the Doctor Who's, and uh, Paul Venesis and Steve Roberts and various other people that work with them um, have saved the series and polished it up. And they're still working on it. They're, they're working on every every era of the show because the, the plan is to eventually have it all. Everything mm -hmm. that exists, we know there's still lots missing, but everything exists will eventually be out on Blu-ray. Um, I just keep praying that they don't cancel Blu-ray, you know, that the BBC, <laughs> if the BBC decide they're not doing any more Blu-rays, you know, what will happen then, you know? Right. But uh, I think, fingers crossed, we, we, we'll see the completion of that project. Well, yeah. and I have to put in a plug for the Alchemists of Sound documentary. That oh, yes. I, I, the last time I looked, and it's been a while, was available mm. in pieces on YouTube, but the fabulous documentary about the Radiophonic yeah. Workshop and all of that the things good. that they came that up was with over the years. Victor Lewis Smith's film, wasn't it, I think? The, the producer of that. I would. Yeah, Victor Lewis Smith, Victor Lewis Smith was um, a comedian. Um, he'd been a critic, um, a radio producer, a television producer. Um, and he was passionate about it. And sadly, he passed away last year. Um, but he was a great, you know, character. And um, I never met him, but uh, I did help out a bit on that project um, with some footage and things. Um, yeah, that was a good one. It's the one where the guy was, there was a guy in the background. Yes. And the clock. Yes. That said, <laughs> I think it spelled out when he worked it out. It's at 1958. Oh, which that was the I year that they figured out, but there was a lot of conversation in the comments on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Who is that guy in the background? Oh, that guy. A lot of think people didn't know what Mark looked like. I think they thought it was him. No, it was um, it was a friend of Victor Lewis Smith, the producer. He said he'd get him on television. That was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> he was just hanging around in the background of lots and lots of interviews. Very funny, but that's the quirky sort of thing that Victor Lewis Smith used to do. Um, he he did a brilliant program called Bygones which was little short five-minute vignettes about strange, weird cultural things from Britain in the bygone days of the 50s and 60s particularly, um, things that we've all forgotten about. And then he says he does it in a book or in a program, um, and it just makes you laugh because you think, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, we all did that, whatever it was. Well, that was like fun. Yeah, yeah no, he was, he was a genius and a bit twisted genius, you know. <laughs> But no, I think his heart was in the right place when it came to things like the history of the BBC and the Radiophonic Archive. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a good, good, good program. I did a little short program um, out of the rushes from Thirty Years in the TARDIS. I did one that was on one of the Doctor Who Blu-rays um, uh, called Masters of Sound, and it was just a short fifteen-minute bit so that we could use the interview with Delia Derbyshire, mm -hmm. who had become a recluse by that point. She was quite a damaged person, very fragile. Um, I liked her. And the, the, the guys on my team looked after her when we finally persuaded her. It took a lot of work persuading her. One of her colleagues, Brian Hodgson, who also worked at Radiophonic Workshop, he promised to sit with her and hold her hand, literally, uh, through her interview. And um, she was a bit eccentric. She was, as I say, a bit fragile. But we, we got the interview. But sadly, I couldn't make it work. I couldn't fit it into the documentary. And, you know, and sometimes that happens. You think, I could put in two minutes of this or even a minute, something, but it wouldn't do it justice. And I cannot tell this, pro this entire story properly in the way that I wanted to right. here. And I'd also been dangled the carrot of I might get to do a follow-on program about the behind-the-scenes story of Doctor Who rather than the on-screen story. 
And um, the behind-the-scenes story would have been a program in its own right. And I thought, actually, this footage would be would fit better there because that program never happened. So um, it was some time later before for the DVD range. If you have a look at the beginning box set, I think it's on the um, the second Doctor Who story um, in inside the spaceship, whatever they call mm-hmm. it, Edge of Destruction. Um, there's a, a DVD extra there about the Radiophonic Workshop, and I quite enjoyed doing that one. So, yeah. And I think for people who don't know who Delia was, could you give a, uh, just a little description? Yeah, she was an electronic music pioneer who created, well, I think they called it Realized, the Doctor Who theme. The, the uh, composer who wrote the score was Ron Grainer, who was sort of master of the signature tune at that time and did lots of other stuff that you might know and recognize, like, like the prisoner. The prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he was known for other things too. And um, uh, he wrote a little score for the, for the theme, um, and she went away and worked on it um, with her colleagues. I think Dick Mills helped as well, and uh, created this weird, unreal, unearthly sound that uh, clearly was something extraordinary and unique. And that was the theme tune to the program for its first, I can't remember how many years, something like 17 years or something, till it got revamped and done slightly differently. Um, but it's always there, the da-da-da-da, that whole bit is, is still in every version that's ever come along since, however it's performed. And uh, Delia was known for that particularly, but she did lots and lots of other radiophonic sounds as well. Um, found sounds, she liked to sort of bang things and create notes out of oscillators and um, by using real things and a famous green lampshade that she used to ding and record and then slow it down and speed it up. And she was a mathematician too. So she would make sounds and then cut the tape to the right length. So there were hundreds of joins in the tape. And Marquez said, you know, the, the, the sticky tape that held it all together was rotting over the years and had to be replaced and that. And there are stories of them running the tape up and down the corridor. Uh, there's a very, very long corridor in the building, which has only just been sold uh, to, you know, um, I've forgotten who it is that's bought it. Famous composer is part of the team that bought it. Anyway, it's it's now, you know, a, a legendary place. Uh, the Beatles recorded there. All sorts of people went there. It was It was part of BBC Radio. It was where the BBC Orchestra used to be based um, uh, at Maid, BBC Maida Vale, uh, you know, earned its place in history. And she was very much part of all that. And so, yes, yeah, she was an important lady. And she's, she's celebrated now. She's gone now. But um, as I say, she was quite fragile when we met her in 93. Uh, so, yeah, I was glad to sort of, you know, make a program that showcased who she was. Yeah, because yeah. I, I don't, if I correctly recall, she didn't get a whole lot of credit for her work back when she was doing it. Is that right? It was difficult. Right? This is this is what happens when people are BBC staff. They don't get the royalties. They don't get the recognition as artists that they would have done if they'd been freelance and outside the BBC. Um, Doctor Who is a very complicated show, copyright-wise. Because although the premise and the title is owned by the BBC and certain other rights have been snapped up over the years, 
all the individual stories are owned by the writers who created them. All the music over the years for the show, the incidental music, is owned by the composers and the musicians that performed for each era of the show. And so you've got all that to take into account. You know, um, if a monster that's created by one writer in an early era of the show gets reused again, sometimes by them, sometimes by other writers, then due credit is given to that freelance writer uh, and payments, you know, are due. And if the thing gets novelized or if someone puts out um, a vinyl record of the soundtrack, um, then, you know, there are rights involved that have to be paid for and paperwork done. Um, I don't know whether you can hear it, but I've got a helicopter passing. Oh, is that what that is? I can't hear it. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Can't do much about that except shut the window. And it is that, well, actually, strangely, we're in the middle of a bit of a heat wave lately. Today was a little bit cooler, but the window's open, so <clears throat> trying to get some air through. <laughs> it's, I think it's just a police helicopter. Occasionally we get them go by circling around. Clear off. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's let's make sure that we have time to talk about the book. Sure. Because I I am still eager to get my hands on a copy when it finally comes out here, which will be soon. It'll be it'll be out in the US by the time this episode is released. But it is There it is. Yes. <laughs> I know your listeners your listeners won't be able to see, but I'm showing you <laughs> On Zoom, I'm showing you a copy of the book. Yeah. It's a blooming heavy thing. It's, <laughs> it's got huge. real weight. It's huge, and it is very glossy. It's vaguely A4 size, but it's 320 pages. So it's like having a almost a ream of oh, A4 fantastic. paper, you know, typing it's paper or whatever. 42. 42. The wildly, the wildly. improbable <laughs> ideas of Douglas Adams. That's the one. Who had From way unbound. more than... Wild, 42 wildly improbable ideas. Lord it's, uh, oh, yes, he did. This is from, from unbound.com, who are a, a small publisher, really, um, in the scheme of things. Um, they operate by creating a geeky kind of interest projects um, on Kickstarter and their own website. And uh, that helps to sort of slightly protect them from the huge risks involved, especially when it's a big picture book like this. It's essentially pictures of Douglas's own handwriting and typing, terrible typing, <laughs> covered in white paper or whatever you call it, Tipex and, you know, the uh, correction fluid and things. And um scratching out and crossing out and x, 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 x through things where he wants to delete something. But, of course, we love all that texture. The fact that he wrote his first four books while he was, you know, actually using an old-fashioned typewriter. Um, and I used to laugh when I, I heard about William Gibson, who, you know, Neuromancer and all that. Mm -hmm. he, he said, I think people think that I, I work on something that looks like a stealth fighter. <laughs> But he just used an old mechanical typewriter. That was that was right. it. And it, the ideas are what makes it, you know. And uh, Douglas, he had notebooks and diaries and endless loose paper. Um, someone had gone through and kept it in order. I don't know if it was him. I don't know if it was one of his uh, several different uh, PAs that he had over the years, secretaries who helped him uh, keep everything in order. But it's astonishing for such a... Someone who I thought was quite a chaotic sort of chap. Um, 
all the times I met him, I, I thought he was a bit more haphazard, really. I'm surprised he kept... He was a bit sentimental, I reckon, because there's quite a lot of stuff there from his school days. Um, and the book covers everything from his school days to his untimely death. So, uh, you know, he died age 49, for those who don't know, in 2001. So he's been missing a long time from this, you know, mortal coil. Um, he went way too soon. Who knows what he would have written later on had he survived. But uh, so I've gone through and I've been through the 67 boxes that are lodged at his former college. I've been through nearly all of it, I think. There were still some that I probably need to have a look at again. But um, the I tried to find the cream of everything that was Douglas Adams so that you get a little bit of everything in each chapter. It's vaguely chronological. Not strictly, but it is pretty much in the order. I mean, a lot of his stuff's not dated, uh, but we can work it out from the context in which we found the papers. Um, he did have folders and things. He kept things in ring binders and folders, but the library has a policy of taking them out of those. They very carefully, in pencil on the back of each page, would put a little Roman numeral because they like to keep it roughly in the order it was donated mm -hmm. to the library. Um, it still very much all belongs to Douglas's family um, and the estate. Uh, so you can only access it with written permission from them. But it's held, like many other former uh, students and staff of St John's College at Cambridge, part of the big Cambridge University uh, town, you know. Um, and it's in the library there alongside medieval manuscripts and all sorts of, you know, other former famous, I think there's astronomers and all sorts of people there that that uh, represent, uh, uh, you know, the history of the place. Um, there's some papers from William Wilberforce, I think, and uh, Wordsworth. You know, he's in good company. <laughs> um, I, there was one lady there researching when I, I, I went in. I did about 17 trips there last year. I live at the top of North London. It's about an hour north up the motorway to Cambridge. And um, I did that trip about 17 times last year and uh, would photograph everything on my iPhone because there was not enough time to there. They have very strict hours. And so um, they close for lunch, which is a very quaint British <laughs> sort of way of doing things. And so I would I would go across the, to the pub across the road where Douglas used to go as a student, and where um, there was a documentary about him um, in '91 where he went there um, because he wanted to film in the college and they wouldn't let him. So he kept going back to the pub. So this is the pub I used to go to, and I'm going to do this bit here. Um, but so yeah, I used to go there for the lunchtime and then go back across the road to the library. And just get through as much as I possibly could in one day, photographing everything. And then I would then spend, for every day that I'd been to the library, I'd spend a week, maybe two weeks, just cataloguing it or reading it properly, cataloguing it myself. Although the I have to say, the library had done a very good job. A guy called uh, Dr. Adam Crothers had uh, created the online catalogue, which you can read. But they're very much bullet points. You know, it's not every page. It's, it says, you know, it might say, one single page or it might say 17 pages or 48 you know it's each item you've got to go there's only one way to do it and that's to wade through it all and then decide okay does this describe something about douglas does this show his process does this show some 
unique aspect of a particular project. Is this a project we've even heard of before? There's several things in that book which I didn't know until I did this work, and it's going to be a surprise to some people who think they know Douglas. I mean, there's been some very good biographies already by friends of mine, strangely. I, don't, I know most of them. One of them has passed away, sadly. The very first person to document Hitchhikers as a phenomenon was Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. And um, I met him when he was working on his book, Don't Panic, long before he was the famous Neil Gaiman, you know, right. story story writer extraordinaire. Uh, he was a kind of uh, jobbing reporter and um, he'd just started to dabble in comics, I think, at that point. Uh, but it was very much at the start of his career. But he loved Douglas and they they got on famously. And uh, so, you know, he he's very much a part of of the whole history of it. And uh, he wrote a great book called Don't Panic, which has been updated several times across the years by other writers. Um, And there was the official biography by Nick Webb, who was a great mate of Douglas's. He was the man at Pan Books who first commissioned Douglas to write the very first um, paperback and then promptly left Pan Books. That's probably why they're still friends (laughs) because Nick Webb never had to get a you know a, a, a manuscript out of Douglas by a certain date. He left that to others, but he did the genius thing of of saying, "Hey, Douglas, I think you can write." In fact, it was going to be John Lloyd and Douglas Adams together writing the first novel until Douglas unceremoniously dumped his best friend and said, "I'm going to go it alone," which caused great rift between them for a short while. Uh, John Lloyd is very gracious nowadays. He's been very helpful on the book. Nice to me, but he's it always said ever since you say it's the right thing for douglas to have done because the novels are unique douglas's pure voice you know i love the radio shows where it all began because that is you know the heart of what hitchhiker is it began on radio weirdly um and i love that particularly but if you want to get that because that has to be worked on by a producer and then the voices of the actors and people doing sound effects and all the various things in between the music and all that. But if you just want Douglas's voice, then it's the novels and um, either one, the radio or the novels, that's the pure hitchhiker. Um, Of course, then he spent the next sort of rest of his life really trying to escape from hitchhiker and do other things. And um, there's a bit in the book with him berating himself for not being able to get on with it and writing it. Oh, God, you know, Arthur Dent is a burk. He doesn't interest me. (laughs) Things like that written on the page. And then, oh, Douglas, you're writing complete garbage, typing this onto the page, you know, berating himself. Um, But, yeah, he wanted to do other things. And increasingly in later life, he became more interested in real science. And one wonders if if he had lived... Would he have written a real science book? I think mm-hmm. it was brewing. He got interested in uh, all sorts of things, you know, right the way across the board from chaos theory, um, astronomy, um, all the advances in telecommunications, uh, computing. We know he loved the Apple Mac. He bought every iteration of an Apple Mac that there was. I was actually there at the Digital Village when he set up the company with Robbie Stamp. I was visiting when they they hadn't got premises yet and they were using. Uh, Ed Victor's office, which is Douglas's agent. Um, and I went there for a meeting. He was introducing everybody he knew to everybody else, trying to work out what this new company was going to become. Um, and I did go there a few times. And um, on my first visit, Douglas had just taken delivery of a bunch of power books. Apple was sending him <laughs> stuff for free. 
you know, he was an Apple master. He right, was very much right. part of the, the you know, uh, sort of culture of the company. And, um, and he would be an inspirational speaker at tech conferences. So, yeah, he was well steeped in it all. And, of course, alongside that was his passion for ecology and conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the times I interviewed him, the most probably the most in-depth interview I ever did, was in 1985. Uh, when um, my wife and a couple of friends and that, we took a camera, microphones and that, we went and interviewed him because he couldn't come to the convention that year. There was um, a big hitchhiker's convention for ZZ9, Plural Z Alpha, the uh, official hitchhiker's fan club. We're having a a games convention, a hitchhiker-themed games convention in Birmingham. And um, uh, so he couldn't be at it because he was going to a, a book, fair somewhere else and he said uh I'll, I'll i'll do a video for you then so we went and interviewed him on the roof garden of his house and he had a, a, a kind of well he called it apartment but it was multi-story apartment above a shop on the green islington a fashionable part of london now it's very much um the in place to be for a certain crowd very gentrified now um and yeah we climbed up his stairs and he had a green spiral staircase to get out onto the roof and we interviewed him there and um yeah he was all full of the fact that he'd just come back from madagascar it was his first trip abroad he'd been sent there by um, one of the big sunday newspapers um the observer to be this sort of untrained eye on a trip into the jungle in madagascar to look for a strange weird looking uh rare breed of lemur called an eye eye and he said uh, you know you've got to go into the jungle i mean it's it's nocturnal it means you've got to take a torch <laughs> and so and so, no, he's laughing so no, it's very important you've got to have a torch in the jungle um and yeah he loved it he found it absolutely riveting and he's and we caught him at that moment he'd just been back two weeks and he said you know what? i really would like to do some more of that and two years later he took a whole year out and went around the world on a number of different trips to different parts of the world looking at weird and strange and sadly you know bedeviled by mankind mostly mm-hmm. uh, anim- animals near the near the sort of edge of dis- uh, extinction and um, when his great friend Stephen Fry, um, who was you know the voice of the guide in the yep. mov- movie of Hitchhiker, when Stephen Fry um, uh, went twenty years later, he recreated Douglas's steps with Mark Carwardine, who was Douglas's friend that he travelled with, um, the, the naturalist, uh, zoologist. Um, they found that one of them had died out, which was the Yangtze River dolphin, um, and. Uh, you know, it's kind of sad to know that the the, the legacy wasn't that they'd saved mm-hmm. necessarily anything. But he did do, he, as a founder patron of Save the Rhino, they're doing great work and, you know, they've had some successes there. Uh, but I recommend that book. The book that came out of that project was called Last Chance to See. And if you've only ever read Hitchhiker's Guide or maybe Dirt Gently, and you've never read Last Chance to See, then you're missing something, because it was Douglas's personal favourite of his own work. You know, he used to like reading real science, so I do wonder whether this particular book, which is also one of his funniest, you know, don't be put off by the fact that it's factual. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I'm sure you've read it, but 
for those of your listeners and that I, I think I recommend it as as a just great fun to read with a point behind it you know Douglas is is making a firm point about how we're mistreating the environment of these animals and um yeah he was fascinated by the rhino um which he wrote into uh his last uh dirt gently book which remained incomplete at his death so it was published posthumously in its in its un, unfinished form uh the salmon of doubt so uh, if you've read the other dirt gently books there's a third one there that you might like to give a go but doesn't have a proper ending sadly <laughs> Uh, but so um yeah so this book 42 covers the whole shebang and you'll learn something about douglas you'll learn something about writers and how they write or how they fail to write in douglas's <laughs> case um and he's very funny about it he's quite poignant in places you know you learn about his ups and downs when he was a struggling sort of uh, just after leaving university when he was trying to get uh, get his foot in the door, really, at the BBC as a comedy script writer uh, and some of his sort of minor successes that he had at that time. He nearly gave it all up. There's a job application in there to go and do something else. He was going to be a shipping clerk in Hong Kong. Wow. Um, and very nearly, we nearly lost him at that point. Um, wow. When it, He nearly went and got a proper job. <laughs> Can you uh, imagine? Well, no. <laughs> no. I don't want to. Uh, I I wish I'm one of those who wish that there'd been a lot more hitchhiker, and that's clearly what a lot of people wanted. But it's not what Douglas wanted, you know. I think mean, his last book, Mostly Harmless, was a bit of a downer at the end. I won't say too much mm -hmm. if you haven't read it, but um, it's worth a read. Uh, Dirt Mags, the radio producer, adapted the later books and continued the radio series. So there are six radio series based on Douglas's five books and a sixth one that was given the official nod by Douglas's estate by Owen Colfer, the Irish writer who writes um, Artemis Fowl, mm -hmm. which was a terrific series. And D Dirk adapted that for radio. And that's when I first got involved. I was asked to go and investigate the archive and see if there were any unique bits of hitchhiker material that had not been used. Um, and I did that in 2016 for Dirk when he was preparing an adaptation of Owen Colfer's book so that there'd be a little bit of Douglas magic peppered around in it. And I did manage to find some stuff. And I, but I also looked at it and thought, do you know what? This is this this should be a book. Just looking at all the papers. And it was quite emotional seeing it in Douglas's own handwriting and all that. And especially when he's berating himself on the page for not getting it done. I thought there's something, there's a book here, maybe something like how Douglas Adams wrote. Mm -hmm. You know, but I never dreamt it would be me. <laughs> and then out of the blue, the publishers Unbound came to me and said, you've been recommended by the family and the estate and the agent for Douglas's estate. And so I was very flattered. And I said, well, the research side of it is the same as what I do day job, you know, making documentaries. It's the same process, really. You look for a giant archive and you look for what is the story? Where, what, what are we trying to say here? And how to string it all together and make it flow. And, all that and so the outcome was was this book well indeed it was me there's a, that book oh, i've got another book here i haven't shown you that uh, wouldn't really work for your listeners but you might recognize that <laughs> uh -huh. 
The guide. The guide. <laughs> that's my copy of the guide. It's taken from the same mould. I had it um, to describe it. It's the electronic book itself from the TV version. The actual one from the TV no longer exists. It, it's uh, long since gone. But luckily, a friend who worked at BBC uh, Visual Effects struck a copy out of the mould. It's vacuum-formed plastic, and it comes apart. And inside, I, in the oh 80s, I got, I got it signed by... That's Douglas Adams, Mark Wing Davy, and Jeffrey Perkins. That's the producer, one of the actors, and Douglas himself. Um, and um, the way it was done back on the television, we had um, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Obviously, an electronic book was something that didn't exist in those days. It was just Douglas's idea. And so this plastic form had a, an opal glass screen and a projector projected the animation onto the back of the screen and then it was held by Arthur Dent, Simon Jones, would hold it and move it around. And because the projector was bolted to the book on a long arm, the projector would follow the screen even if he moved a little bit. So it looked very real and we actually got letters from people saying, um, uh, did you use one of those new Sinclair flat screen TVs we've heard about? (laughs) No, sorry, it was a very old-fashioned film technique called back projection <laughs> but um that was quite funny but no so i i used that in the making of hitchhikers so it's it is screen used by by arthur dent simon jones himself um in 1992 when we we filmed a little sequence loosely based on the fourth novel that arthur dent arrives back home on earth after it's been destroyed mysteriously earth is back again but in my version it was something else but you know, um, they kind of, they kind of did that in the, in the radio shows and in, you know, Douglas addressed that in his later books. So, uh, yeah, the idea that there are multiple universes and maybe multiple Earths. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so, but that's it, really. So I'm kind of rambling now. <laughs> that's all right. I'm aware that your time is probably up. <laughs> that's okay. I, I, I am wondering. Because I cannot think of another book or series that has existed in so many different iterations as Hitchhiker has. Because as you well, mentioned, Douglas. it started as the radio show and then the books and then mm. was it a record? I mean, there was the computer game. There was the, you know, so many different things. And I wonder mm. if that is that part of why eventually he just reached the point where he's like, I'm sick of Arthur Dent. <laughs> Well, he was so upset because he he always wanted there to be a movie during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is, although he 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 uh, emigrated to live in California for the last two years of his life, um, you know, it was because he was trying to get the movie done and he was very close to clinching it. Um, and then it went into turnaround and he was quite depressed, I believe, um, about the whole situation. But he loved living in Santa Barbara. Um, and, but unfortunately he overdid it one day in the, in the gym, um, in Montecito, I think it was. And, and, um, he got off a piece of exercise equipment and he had a heart attack and died. So terrible tragedy for his family. He had a a young daughter, only six years old, Polly, who got married about a week ago. So, you know, there's a happy ending there. Um, and you know, it's just, uh, tragic that the, the family, his friends, his fans, they were all robbed at that moment of whatever Douglas might have done next. Mm-hmm. 
you know, his, his company, the Digital Village, sadly went bust like a lot of the dot-com companies did. You know, the finance went a bit wonky and something happened. Um, but Douglas, you know, would have done more, I'm sure. And uh, he never quite saw the movie. The movie came out, um, you know, several years after his death and was continued by his business partner, Robbie Stamp, who was an exec producer on the movie, um, spoke rather movingly about him the other day um, at the launch that we had at the British Library, uh, which was a lovely evening. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just uh, we all celebrate him now. We have Towel Day every 25th of May, uh, International Towel Day, where everyone carries their towels. Um, the fan club still has organised events, uh, this Friday, I'm doing a signing at Bookshop in Cambridge, the same bookshop that Douglas attended and used as a student at Cambridge, just down the road from his college, St. John's. Um, Heifers, the bookshop. Uh, I'm doing a talk there and signing the book. Uh, Douglas went back there in 81, I believe, to sign copies of Restaurant at the End of the Universe. He may have gone at other times as well, but we found a note of that in one of his diaries. And uh, so I'm quite delighted to be going there. And the, an exhibition of his papers is being uh, held um, in St. John's in the 400-year-old library, uh, which looks like, I mean, the, the main gallery of the library. There's a very modern section, but the main gallery looks like a church. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and the bookcases are big, heavy bookcases with leather tomes on them. Looks like something out of Hogwarts, you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's very much redolent of that. Um, but that's where his stuff will be exhibited under glass in their cabinets there. And um, that's open on the Friday afternoon and Saturday. And then on the Saturday afternoon, the fans are having an organised uh, walking tour around Cambridge, um, which uh, Dave Haddock, who is a member of ZZ9, one of the stalwarts of the whole thing, um, he does guided tours, both of of his hometown of Cambridge, Douglas's Cambridge, and also Douglas's Islington in North London, where he lived for the main part of when he was working. So, um, you know, the, the stories and the legend of Douglas Adams carries on. Yeah. Do you, th what, what do you think he would think if he knew that he was having an exhibition in you well, know, I think he would think it's very bizarre. I think he'd also see extreme cheeky and rude that people <laughs> are looking into his private papers. I mean, I, I was very aware sitting there, you know, in all the trips that I made up there and sitting in the special collections reading room, which is a very small room. There's only like three or four desks in it. And I'm sitting there looking at these papers thinking, oh, Douglas, you wouldn't want me or anybody else looking at this stuff, really, would you? But we all want more. You know, mm -hmm. you've left us wanting more. And so, you know, in the absence of any other material, this is it. This book gives you what there is. It's the best of what's left behind. Right. And it's, it's, uh, it's both um, poignant and sad, but, of course, the material itself is invariably funny. You know, it's a good read. There's good stuff in that book. Um, uh, there are some pictures as well. There's photographs and stuff, but it's mostly about his writing. And, uh, you know, I hope we've done him justice. I think we have. We're I'm getting sure. some nice reviews where there have been some very nice positive comments and reviews, which I, I try to address. I try to thank everyone who uh, expresses an interest online. There's been quite a bit. So uh, I've been very, very busy on social media lately. I'm sure. I, I've, I've, I've had a, a sort of, you know, baptism of fire as regard PR. 
I've not dealt with a lot of PR. I mean, I once had a big press call on Westminster Bridge with eight Daleks for, for the big Doctor <laughs> Who documentary. That was 30 years ago. And um, that was a bit of an epic in itself because I've been told by the police on no, in no uncertain terms, do not stop the traffic. And that's the first thing the gentlemen of the British press, ah, so-called, um, did was, of course, they stopped the traffic to put a line of Daleks across the bridge. So I went to the policeman on duty and said, look, I'm telling you, I'm running this lot from the BBC. We are finished, OK? Anything that happens now is down to the papers. <laughs> <laughs> so, Don't yeah. <laughs> yeah quite yeah but uh, no i've got a few nice things coming up there's going to be another big event on the 21st of october at um the royal F uh, not the royal festival the um queen elizabeth hall at south bank complex in central london uh on the river there um and um we're having a big do that's going to be hosted by douglas's friend former flatmate co-writer producer of black adder spitting image qi john lloyd um, who's going to host the evening. And uh, We had Clive Anderson, another one of Douglas's friends, on last Friday night um, at the British Library, and that was lovely. And, uh, yeah, I feel very lucky to be, you know, in the centre of this little storm around Douglas's name. But, but you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of daft. I know that it's all about Douglas. So I, I, I'm just a lucky recipient of the attention at the moment. But it, this is the book about Douglas for the fans of Douglas, uh, for everyone who loved him. And, you know, as somebody else pointed out, people feel they know him through his writing, mm -hmm. even if they never met him. Goodness knows, thousands of people met him. He toured and he signed books, you know, for years on end. And he loved doing that. Um, there's even a little piece in here about what it is like when he's confronted by a whole line of people who want to talk to him and when they come to a signing, you know, he's written about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm delighted that everyone's enjoying it uh, as it thuds through their letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> put, somebody said, I've put a pillow under the letterbox so that when it comes through the door, it's not going to get damaged because <laughs> it, is, it is incredibly heavy. Uh, but it's a lovely coffee table book, and so you can savour it. It's vaguely chronological, but you can dip in and out and find something new each time, I hope. Well, I know I am looking forward to giving it a good look when I get the opportunity, and I'm sure that I am not the only one. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for coming and spending some time with me. This has been so much fun. I've enjoyed it. That's this week's show. Thanks so much to Kevin John Davis and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There's a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us how a childhood influence has stuck with you. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thank you so much. If this episode resonated with you, or if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, join me at The Spark on Substack as we form a community that supports and celebrates each other's creative courage. It's free, and it's also where I'll be adding programs for subscribers and listeners. The link is in your podcast app, so sign up today. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners.